What, what I wanted to talk about today was not so much the Paris Peace Conference, um, but what happened after the Paris Peace Conference in the, in the post-war, post-war world. So I'm going to talk about peacetime diplomacy and the new European order. And there's certainly a new European order. Look at Europe in 1914, controlled by four huge empires, which had really controlled Eastern and Central Europe for the last three, four hundred years. And, of course, the fifth empire uh, of Germany, Austria-Hungary, Russia, and the Ottoman Empire, which have controlled this, this great area for a long, long time. And... In 1918, 1919, they simply, a lot of them vanish. Austria-Hungary vanishes forever. Uh, Turkey is completely defeated. Germany is suffering revolution. Uh, It is a a vacuum in the centre of Europe. And the big fear of the peacemakers, uh, the two big fears, one, what we're going to do about Germany, and the second big fear is what the hell's going to happen in Russia and what's going to happen when, to Russia and what Russia is, what influence it's going to have on, on, on Europe. So this, this uh, picture of Europe in 1914 is transformed by the war itself and by the terrible uh, catastrophe of the First World War. We're never entirely sure. The figures, normally 9 to 10 million young men, young conscripts killed in the war. Uh, perhaps two to three times as many uh, badly injured, some of them so seriously injured they would never work again across the countries. And in that sense, of course, they were a worse burden to their countries than the people who had been killed. The people who had been killed, you could simply bury. The people who were, were injured, you had to support for a long time afterwards. And <laughs> on top of that, the effects of a worldwide uh, influenza epidemic whose spread was certainly helped by the massive movement of men and, 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 and goods that the First World War had occasioned. And on top of that, the number of people who weren't born simply because of wartime separations. So the First World War has a huge impact on the, the world's population and on Europe itself. And the new Europe looks very, very different. Instead of those four empires, we now have a whole series of new countries, thousands of miles of new frontiers in Europe, uh, many, many of them, uh, many of them, deeply disputed. Uh, so it's going to be very difficult in the future to see how stability is is, is going to come. The settlements, in one sense, because it's very interesting, because it actually transforms in, in one sense the Europe of 1914 in, in in another way. Because the Balkans in 1914 have been very deeply divided. In 1918, 1919, they become consolidated. The, the, the arrival of Yugoslavia, which trebles the size and population of pre-war Serbia, on which it was partly based, uh, the uh, consolidation of Greece, which doubles its population, uh, it, it makes a big difference there. And Romania also doubles its 1914 population. So the Balkans actually become consolidated. Even Bulgaria, which had hopes, very unrealistic perhaps, on the part of a, a defeated power, that it might actually expand its population because of national self-determination, was disappointed, but it didn't actually lose very much. It lost a little bit of territory which cut it off from the Aegean, but in ter- it, its big problem is not what it loses, it's what its neighbours gain. And whereas it had been quite a big power in the Balkans in 1914, by 1918, 1919, it's become much, much smaller, even though it didn't lose very much. So there's big changes there. But by contrast, of course, Eastern, Eastern Europe has become balkanized, become fragmented, 
Whereas before there were the, 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 the Austria, Hungary, Russia, Germany, now you've got something like nine new states, or eight or nine new states. Um, you've got um, Finland, Estonia, uh, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland, Czechoslovakia, the rump states of Austria and Hungary, and the enigma of the USSR, Russia, which is it? We're not quite sure what's going to happen there. So there's a, a vacuum there. Hungary, which is the biggest loser of all. The Germans bleat about the Treaty of Versailles. The people who really have to complain about the, about the Treaty of Versailles and so on are the, are the Hungarians. They lose two-thirds of their territory, and by the end of the war, something like uh, two-thirds of their, uh, 58% of their population uh, are lost. One-third of Magyars are now living in countries in which they're not the dominant majority, so much, in some senses, for national self-determination. Uh, typically, but most significantly in Eastern and Central Europe, where the revival... Austria-Hungary wasn't going to revive, but, uh, but this power balance in 1918-1919 is very artificial, and the chances are that either Germany or Russia, or both, will revive. In that case, these new countries in Eastern and Central Europe have got to hang together, otherwise they're going to hang separately. And their big problem is they've all got so many disputes with each other that, uh, that they, they, they can't reach the political, economic and military uh, agreements which would be so necessary to their future survival. Very interestingly too, uh, there's the settlement um, which is supposed to be based on national self-determination, though of course that was a very difficult thing to try and apply, does actually halve the number of people in Europe who are living in, as it were, the wrong country. It's very difficult to well, what's the wrong country, the right country. But the 60 million, we, we estimate that in 1914 there were 60 million people living in countries in which they weren't the dominant majority. Uh, by 1919, that has been halved to 30 million. Um, and, but you still find 25% of people living in, in, in countries finding themselves as feared and rejected minorities in the new states, uh, each witness to the impossibility of applying Wilson's troublesome principle. So it's a, it's a very, very different New Europe in 1918-1919 than it had been in 1914. And the interesting thing about this is, as I was saying about the, the countries in Eastern and Central Europe, they're all in dispute with each other. None of them is satisfied. And if you divide, if you want to sort of look at the world and say, well, what's going to happen? You look at this and say, well, which, which countries want to keep things as they are? Which are status quo powers? Which powers want to change things? Which are revisionist powers? And if you look at the post-war settlements, most countries are revisionist. They want to change things, but they don't necessarily have the power to do so. Hungary, of course, would be the most revisionist of all, but Hungary hasn't got the power which Germany will later have. And at the moment, in 1919 through the 1920s, really, Britain and France control enough power to stop <coughs> there being major changes in Europe, but that will change as the 1930s move on. Apparently, too, as well as a new Europe, we were going to have a new diplomacy. The First World War, the outbreak of the First World War, had occasioned a great deal of radical discontent about the state of European diplomacy before the, uh, that had led to that outbreak. Most, most eloquently expressed, uh, allegedly the first real expression of the idea of the new diplomacy, comes with the Union of Democratic Controls uh, four cardinal points in November 1914, which essentially are that there should be democratic control, parliamentary control of foreign policy, that people should be consulted about where they want to live, a sort of national self-determination, uh, 
that there should be some sort of international organisation, a court, to arbitrate disputes so you don't fight each other, you find a different way of dispute resolution, and that armaments should be removed from the idea of private profit, the idea of the merchants of death. Uh, <coughs> later, uh, Hobson would add a fifth in 1915 that um, the, 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 the present war should not be continued by economic means after the war had, war had ended. Those ideas were wonderful, and they were expressed by many people around the world, not just in Britain. But as uh, Frederick II had disparagingly remarked of the uh, ideas of Abbé Saint-Pierre in the, in the 18th century, these required only the uh, agreement of Europe and a few trifles to make them operative. What they needed, therefore, was a strong sponsor. And in May 1916, that sponsor arrived in the shape of Woodrow Wilson, the President of the United States. He said in that speech that the peace of the world must henceforth depend on a new and more wholesome diplomacy. And that he developed, of course, in his 1917 speech, the uh, Peace Without Victory speech, and most famously in the 8th of January 1918 speech, the 14 points. He was uh, the, the voice, the, the power behind... And as... as, as um, as we were saying this morning, we asked, you know, did, the, did America win the First World War? Um, well, the answer was a very good one, uh, given, I think, this morning. But the influence of the United States uh, was in, enormous. And as Keynes points out in that wonderful but very deeply troubling book, The Economic Consequence of the Peace, when Wilson arrived in Paris in 1919, no philosopher king had had the weapons to bind the princes of the world to, to, to his will. He had the money... Europe depended on the money, he had the food, Europe depended on America for food, and until the end of the war it depended America very heavily for munitions. So Wilson had a lot of power, and that gave the ideas of the new diplomacy some real uh, influence. Um, but could that actually be delivered? Well, <laughs> when it comes to the Paris Peace Conference afterwards, uh, Wilson, of course, vanishes from the scene and when the League of Nations rings America after the First World War and said, uh, uh, making her first use of the long-distance telephone call, is that my friend Mr. Wilson speaking? President Harding, who was no friend of the, the, the League, said, no, quite the reverse, ring off. That was the end of America and the League. And this, of course, left the League of Nations uh, with a vital keystone missing. The punch cartoon, the gap in the middle, has it perfectly. Uh, there is the United States, the keystone, which doesn't exist. And it leaves the, the League of Nations as the reluctant uh, guardian, or the, the, Britain and France, the reluctant guardians of Wilson's or, uh, orphan at, at Geneva, which they, where they disagree as strongly as they disagree everywhere else about everything else. So the gap in the, in the bridge uh, is, is crucial. You cannot have a League of Nations without America. It would not be of the least use said Lloyd George, who was no friend of the League in the first place. So the League of Nations is, is there. It, it is on, on, on the books, as it were, but how important actually was it? Wilson's policy in Paris, and Lloyd George's to some extent, had, had pinned great hopes on the League because they knew they were going to make mistakes. Huge, huge pressure when they're making the peace settlement. They need something to, you know, a safety net to mop things up afterwards. And, of course, they, they pin great hopes on, on the League uh, as a, an effective alliance for peace. And if taken seriously, the demands of the Covenant would revolutionise international relations. They would change the whole way in which international relations were and diplomacy would be, would be conducted. And it's clear there was a constituency within Britain, especially, 
that expected the government to take the League of Nations and the Covenant seriously. The Foreign Office had very grave reservations about the League, partly because it didn't control this new aspect of British foreign, Britain's foreign policy. It fell under the influence of the Cabinet Office and Maurice Hankey, about which the, the Foreign Office were enormously uh, worried and paranoid that the Cab Cabinet Office was going to try and take over the role of the Foreign Office, so they didn't like that at all. But partly because um, uh, its senior members really didn't think the League was, was, was going to work. There were officials, uh, uh, Hedlund Morley is one of them, who believed that the League could be made more central to the post-war world and sought, for example, in looking at the way in which Danzig would be governed or the Saar would be administered after the First World War uh, or the continuing role of the League in monitoring uh, national minority protection, that the League should have a proper function in the post-war world. But the government really didn't see it that way. And when Cecil, who was the Lord Robert Cecil, was an inveterate League supporter, suggested to the government that um, in, in, 19, in 1920, after the French had occupied five German towns in the wake of the Cap Putsch in Germany, he said, this is, this is clearly something that the League should be brought into. And the government, the Foreign Office said, yes, in its minutes, yes, it's quite right. But in practice, we're not going to let them anywhere near that. The, the League has nothing to do with the execution and the, of the Treaty of Versailles. That's for Britain and France to deal with. We don't get the League involved in that. Such matters were for, uh, for the Allied governments, not the League to deal with. But as Ruth Henning persuasively points out, it was too big an electoral risk in Britain to ignore the League. And this really rebounds through the 20s and into the 30s. Uh, on the one hand, the government really is still made up of people who believe that the world is made up of powers and you need to balance those powers. And on the other hand, there's this strong idea that you've got to support the idea of collective security. And the two simply don't match up. And of course, they come to a huge collision in 1935 when the Italians, whom... In one sense, of course, you rely on very heavily in terms of the balance of power to counteract the new rising power of Nazi Germany. But the, the, the Italians invade Abyssinia in the most blatant act of aggression. It wasn't one of those cases where you could say, well, it might have been this, it might... It was very clear who the guys in the black hats were in this cowboy film. They were the Italians. So you, you had a clear case of aggression. Which were you going to back? The idea of the balance of power, in which case you shut your ears and you didn't look at the fact that the Italians had invaded Abyssinia, or were you going to back the League and the idea of collective security? And given that the League of Nations Union in Britain had just had a poll which showed that large numbers of people in Britain were still prepared to go to war on behalf of the League in order to maintain and an election was just about to come up in October, you had no choice. They had to back the League. But what they finish up with doing, of course, is backing the League half-heartedly uh, so that they lose the League because the League collapses, but they also alienate Italy as well. So it's, it's, a, it's a disaster. So the League is, is, a, is, a, is a distraction, really, in many ways, in terms of uh, foreign policy after the war, but it's there. What I really want to talk about in, in, in a bit more detail is Anglo-French relations after the war and two particular areas. One is Germany and the other is Russia. But So Anglo-French relations and the, the era of casino diplomacy. They had... There's a great fad for uh, conferences. Now, what I should show at this point, of course, is the Treaty of Versailles. Crucial document on which everything depends. Sadly, I can't show you because the French managed to lose it. Uh, well, it was, they, they were under some distraction. It was 1940 and the Germans were invading. What they did was to load up a load of documents and send them to tour for dispatch to the United States for safekeeping. 
in the great mix-up, they managed to save this document, which is the ratification of the Treaty of Versailles. Because every document, every you sign the treaty, but it doesn't become operative until a number of countries have ratified it. And this is President Poincaré's ratification of the Treaty of Versailles, almost his last act as President of the French Republic. In January 1920, he ratifies the treaty. There is the document from the Quai d'Orsay. But the, the, the treaty itself, the Treaty of Versailles itself, the, the official version of the Treaty of Versailles, the French version to which we should have referred should there be any dispute, was lost. It's either in Russia, probably unluck- uh, unlikely, the Russians seem to return most of the documents which they which they would say they, they got from in uh, from the in after nine after the, um, the end of the Soviet Union they returned most of the stuff that had gone to do or more likely it was bombed by the RAF in 19, 1945 but it doesn't exist anymore so I can't show you the Treaty of Versailles sorry about that after the Treaty of Versailles was signed on the 28th of June 1919 hence the title of my new book um, on the Sunday uh, on the Saturday today uh, Franz Ferdinand was killed tomorrow on Sunday as it were the 28th of June was a Sunday in 1940 but in 1919 it was on a, on a Saturday James Hedlund Morley said that no doubt things will become much more orderly but they will become much duller how wrong he was <laughs> this was not the case of course Germany had had its treaty here is a lovely cartoon from the Daily Express showing uh, Germany coming out of the peace trends uh, from, the, um, from the big four's dental treatment no, uh, no gas used in this department, this establishment. Uh, he had no anaesthetics. Uh, and here are Bulgaria, Turkey, Austria, Hungary, sitting waiting for their turn to to uh, to do. So the, the peace settlements are not completed with the signature of the Treaty of Versailles. They've still got still got to go on uh, after that. But uh, the old familiar balance of power has clearly clearly vanished. Um, Russia is in chaos. Though the Bolsheviks are eventually gaining power, seem to be gaining, gradually gaining power. The Austro-Hungarian Empire has imploded and vanished. The Ottomans were waiting their turn of, of queue in the queue. Uh, Germany was defeated, menaced by internal revolution. Several new or revived states filled the vacuum left by the sequential caps, collapse of traditional power in Eastern and Central Europe. The United States had played what was perceived to be a vital intervention in the war and had certainly played a major role in drawing up the, uh, the peace settlement from which it was now apparently about to withdraw from enforcing. And of course, not least of all, was Wilson's legacy of the League. Japan was confirmed as a major regional power and uh, Italy, in a world of fewer powers, uh, perhaps seemed larger and stronger than it actually was. But after 1922, Italy would arguably join a growing group of states whose conduct of foreign affairs was influenced, perhaps dominated, by considerations of ideology. The centre of Britain's post-war world apparently remained France, both an ally and a rival, a paradox reflected in the complexity of Anglo-French relationships across a whole series of issues, not least, of course, in the Middle East. Britain declares after the uh, uh, Anglo-French relations are partly based on personal relationships uh, to a certain extent. Lloyd George and Clemenceau had an interesting relationship in Paris. At one point, Clemenceau threatened to fight a duel with Lloyd George because he said that Lloyd George had gone back on his word so many times he didn't believe. Now, Lloyd George very wisely turned down 
the opportunity to fight uh, Clemenceau. Clemenceau was the, was the veteran of several duels, and Lloyd George, to the best of my knowledge, despite his various amorous adventures, never had to fight one. So uh, he turned that down. But the French uh, dispensed with Clemenceau. Uh, he expected in January 1920 to be uh, acclaimed as the new president to replace his bitter rival, Raymond Poincaré, but the French did not uh, choose Clemenceau to be their new uh, president. They chose instead a madman uh, who had to be changed very quickly. He got off the train, he kept getting off the train in his nightshirt and arriving at peasants' cottages and saying, Bonjour, je suis le président de la France. But sadly, because he was the president of the France. <laughs> and nobody quite knew under the French constitution how you got rid of the French president who was mad. So fortunately, they, they persuaded him eventually to, to resign and Milleron replaced him. But Clemenceau goes. The key figure for, many, for much of the, the, the post-war period in, in the 1920s, but particularly during the Lord George era that I'm looking at mostly now, was Aristide Briand. Um, and Briand and Lloyd George got on very well. Uh, a great strong personal relationship. It's alleged that they were able to converse with each other, uh, um, uh, Briand being a Breton and Lloyd George being a Welshman, they were able to speak in a sort of language they, 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 un they understood, Breton, Welsh, they... And there's a story which is told, I've seen it told by both, both ways. But the, 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 the nub of the story is that one says to the other, uh, Lloyd George, let's say, says to, um, to Briand, uh, ah, you, your Breton soldiers fought so well in the last war. Wonderful. And uh, equally I've heard it said of uh, Briand, that Briand said to Lloyd George, ah, your Welshmen, they were marvellous fighters in the last war. And the answer in both cases was the same. Ah, they thought they were fighting the English. <laughs> so these two guys got on very, 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 very well. Raymond, Pire, but, but the different, uh, perhaps a rather less well uh, good relationship was between the British and Raymond Poincaré, who steps down from being President of the Republic and becomes eventually Prime Minister. Uh, the, the British ambassador in, 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 in France, Charles, Charles Harding, called him a dirty dog a man of very mean character, and George Curzon, the British Foreign Secretary, said, I wish Poincaré, with his meticulous hostility, was at the bottom of the sea forever. And, of course, there's the famous occasion during the negotiations uh, during the Chanak crisis when, uh, when Curzon goes to Paris and uh, attacks uh, Poincaré for being, uh, for, for, for being treacherous, letting Britain know, and Poincaré erupts and... and Curzon has to be led from the room by, the, by, by Harding, the British ambassador. In tears, he's weeping. <laughs> he's a horrid little man, Charlie. I can't stand him. I can't stand him. So this, they have to be sort of calmed down. And, but but Poincaré was not somebody the British liked. But when it comes down to it, really, uh, the, the, the reality is not that uh, this was a matter of, of great importance in international relations. Uh, the, the, there were much more important reasons for problems with, with France. And I said there was this great... Um, uh, fad after the war for perhaps trying to continue the negotiations which had gone on in Paris uh, within the era of conference diplomacy. And a lot of conferences, little conferences go on in different places all around the world. And here uh, is how every statesman believed that every conference should be. This is actually taken from 1919, but this is how Clemenceau thought the French conversation. He would, he would be Clemenceau speaking to Clemenceau around the world, and everyone would agree with Clemenceau. Of course, everyone hoped this would be the case. It wasn't quite like that. But it really, the idea of conference diplomacy really suited David Lloyd George, the British Prime Minister, who was a brilliant 
manipulator of detail, which was fed to him very, very, very good. He didn't do much in the way of homework, but he was able to manipulate what, what he was given very quickly. And he was wonderful. Here's a, a wonderful David, uh, David Lowe cartoon. Lowe said every time he tried to join Lloyd George, he tried to paint a censorious face on him, but he always finished up with a smile because he, he couldn't do it any other way. But here is Lloyd George in every archive I've come across at some point. Lloyd George is described by one word, liar. And here is Lowe's version of this. The coalition government, he always painted as a two-headed donkey. So the two-headed donkey is a racehorse. Okay. Uh, here is this pretty gentleman, it's the Tory party, who is the self-sacrificing saviour of mankind. Clearly not quite true. Uh, and and, and uh, this is free trade, uh, says, uh, says uh, Lloyd George. But he's actually got an anti-dumping uh, thing, which actually stops free trade. So I am a blank, but why go into the details? Everything explained according to, according to, um, to, to David Lowe. That relationship with France, though, was, was very important. Um, we write off the United States after the, after the, after the war very quickly. Uh, the, 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 um, the, the, the general staff makes the point that uh, it must be admitted that uh, um, financially we cannot afford to make preparations which would be the essential uh, move uh, the, if we were to contemplate the possibility of war with America. So we can't have a war with America, so we just don't worry with America. Let's just push them to one side. But if war with America was unthinkable, apparently war with, United, with France was not, or at least British decision-makers frightened themselves by discussing the possible effects of such a war, whilst at the same time declaring it would be a world calamity which seems almost unthinkable. But where national security is concerned, even the unthinkable must be faced. Balfour invited the Committee of Imperial Defence to contemplate the French dropping at least 84 tonnes of bombs on London on a daily basis, though he admitted that such an attack was hardly conceivable. Yet as much of British foreign policy after the First World War was inseparably intertwined with its relationship with France, and it was the cause of much debate and much heart-searching amongst contemporaries. In a very perceptive and very thoughtful appraisal of Britain's position in early 1921, Sir Eyre Crowe in the Foreign Office wrote, It is to be feared that failing some general settlement of the German question, which will satisfy French public opinion, we may drift into a serious quarrel, if not a definite breach with France. Such a contingency cannot be contemplated without grave anxiety. England has not been fortunate enough to gain or retain the effective goodwill of any of the European powers, her relations with America are far from satisfactory. Anglo-American tension reacts upon our position both in South America and in the Far East and in the Near and Middle East. We are seriously threatened with dangers arising from the influence of Bolshevik or even Russian hostility. It was not a very rosy worldview. Crow's suggestion was, if we could at this juncture reconstitute or if possible fortify the solidarity of the Entente with France, the whole situation would be materially improved to our advantage. And here lay the great dilemma of post-war international relations for Britain. Should it make an alliance with France in the hope of providing France with the stability and confidence to offer generous treatment to Germany? Or would such an alliance only encourage French intransigence, securing the knowledge of British support? And the whole way through, when looking at the way in which the treaty was being um, uh, executed, uh, there were two positions which came up all the time. The French said the French, that the Germans won't execute the treaty, and the British tended to say the Germans 
can't execute the treaty. And this difference between uh, won't and can't was essentially the difference between them the whole way through. Uh, for the French, of course, this alliance had already been promised during the Paris negotiations, or at least that's what it seemed to have happened until Lloyd George put the alliance rabbit back in the hat. But the British thought the French wanted to bargain separately over every issue. There were many variations on the essential themes of alliance, or not, and, what, and various episodes of negotiations when it seemed a deal was in sight, but it was never clinched. And despite general agreement that such a pact would go far to securing peace in Europe for the foreseeable future, both sides believed or claimed to believe that the alliance was worth more to the other and hence would not want to sell itself for a low price. On the whole, the British didn't want to be engaged to defend Eastern Europe, where the French believed that any German assault on the treaty would, would, would occur, and the French didn't want to cave in on every imperial dispute with Britain. In the end, there was no pact, just a reluctant recognition that each needed enough uh, in a rather a sad partnership where each <coughs> did enough just to thwart the main aims of the other. It's this failure, I think, to make the relationship work that many of Britain's post-war difficulties lie, because of almost every move, a lack of a firm Anglo-French consensus made every solution much more difficult to enforce. The other, I mean, if we look at the problem of Germany post-1919, I say it's this question of when it comes to reparations, when it comes to disarmament, when it comes to almost every issue, where the Germans said they couldn't fulfil the reparations terms. On the whole, Britain tended to, to believe them, uh, and the French tended not to believe them. Uh, but one of the big problems which they faced the whole way through was that they had been very careless, or perhaps very careful, in the treaty not to include very many things in the way of sanctions. So there wasn't much in the treaty, despite its 440 articles, there wasn't very much which could inspire Germany to act immediately. Most of the sanctions, such as they were, were very long-term. Things would not happen in 30 years' time. The Allies would not withdraw from Germany in 30 years' time if they didn't pay reparations. Well, that's not a big incentive in, in 1920 to a German government. What's going to happen in 1950 really doesn't concern most governments. You know, most governments are concerned with the next three or four years and the next election. So that was a difficult problem. And they faced, they had big problems in, when they came to try and in, enforce the treaty. What can we use to actually put pressure on Germany? And what they had to do a lot of the time was to adapt clauses which were intended for other purposes. In March 1921, Article 270, which permitted the Allies to make special customs arrangements for their occupied areas of Germany to safeguard the economic interests of the population of those territories, allegedly, was invoked to, invoke to, to justify a customs barrier around the Rhineland, adjusted, designed to penalise the German government for not making an adequate effort to, re, to comply with the treaty. It was used again for a similar purpose, in, uh, during the Franco-Belgian occupation of the Ruhr, beginning in January 1923. That occupation itself was justified by an interpretation of Part 8, Reparations, Paragraph 18, Annex 2. The paragraph stated that the Allies had the right to take measures in the event of a voluntary reparation default by Germany, which may, quote, include measures, include economic and financial prohibitions and reprisals, and in general, such other measures. French argued that such other measures could include occupation, whereas the British government and one of the, Ameri the original drafters, the American lawyer uh, John Foster Dulles, uh, argued that the plays the only applied to sanctions. When they put those sanctions on in 1921, an exasperated Arnold Robertson, the High Commissioner in, in, uh, in, 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 in Germany, in, in the occupied area, 
uh, had no people on the ground to enforce it. So he said well, all he could do was put a notice on the barbed wire saying uh, the British expect every day that the German will pay his duty. Uh, a sort of a, a rephrase of, 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 of Nelson's famous uh, speech victory. The other question I want to look at very quickly is the role of the Soviet Union. And there's no doubt that, uh, as Hedler Morley said in January 1919, when the peace conference was just getting underway, in the discussions, everything inevitably leads up to Russia. There's a discursive discussion. It's agreed that the point of issue cannot be determined until the general policy on Russia has been settled. Having agreed on this, instead of settling it, they pass on to some other subject. So the whole question of Russia it hangs over the peace conference. Uh, Herbert Hoover said it was like Banquo's ghost. At every table there was this figure. They were terrified about uh, Bolshevism. They didn't really define it very well. But all through 1919, it looked, until October, November, it looked as though the Bolsheviks weren't going to win. It looked like one of the whites would win, or a combination of the whites. But they didn't know what, what to do. So there's no doubt that during the interwar period, and then in the era of the Cold War itself, diplomats faced a severe challenge in trying to read the motivations and intentions of states with unconventional ideologies, if indeed, of course, they were states at all. And this was a big problem. Were they actually states? Uh, Philip Kerr, Lord Lothian, who was Lloyd George's private secretary, uh, said that he, when he advised the Prime Minister in 1920, September 1920, peace is at present impossible with the Soviet government because their principal object lies in world revolution and not in Russian prosperity. The question was, was this, were you dealing with a conventional state, the heir to Tsarist Russia, or were you dealing with a, a worldwide centre of revolution? Lloyd George, on the whole, was more sympathetic to the, 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 to the Russians uh, than his conservative allies, certainly his liberal colleague Winston Churchill, whom Austin Chamberlain accused of being more Tory than the Tory ministers on the issue, and certainly more, more, more sympathetic in the Foreign Office, and indeed than the French. Francesco Nitti, who was the Italian Prime Minister at this time, made a nice observation about the Conference of London in 1920, where the French Prime Minister Milleron made a, a violent attack on the Bolshevik government, which he said was composed of criminals and assassins. At the next meeting, Lloyd George, with subtle irony, had a collection of English writers on the French Revolution in the Napoleonic period lying on the conference table in front of him. Lloyd George was very clever at these things, nice, nice, nice things. The, there is a sort of change starts to come about in 1920, in 1920. As the Soviets begin to establish themselves, they start to reach agreements with the old parts of Russia. This may seem quite familiar in the light of Mr. Putin's recent actions. Uh, the first treaty they, they make is with Estonia. Uh, and it's this, this Treaty of Tartu, which recognises Estonia, is deemed by uh, Georgi Chicherin, the Soviet foreign minister, as being the first experiment in peaceful coexistence with bourgeois states. So there's a change coming about, and Lloyd George is, is prepared to try and exploit this. And through 1921 and into 1922, he pushes the government to deal more sympathetically with the Soviet Union and indeed to conclude a trade agreement with them. As, Lord, as, as Arthur Balfour eventually pointed out, despite the fact the Soviets weren't very nice people, we also deal with the cannibals on the Solomon Islands. So if they've got money, we're prepared to deal with them. Um, in Lloyd George's terms, the solution to the whole post-war world was going to come in one typical Lloyd Georgian triumph, the Genoa Conference of April 1922. This would solve 
everything. It, and it was breathtaking. It's Lloyd Georgian in the breathtaking nature of its vision and Lloyd Georgian in the fact that he did very little <coughs> to actually prepare for the way in which the conference should take place. So it's a wonderful idea. You're going to bring Russia, Germany, United States and France together in one conference. What you're going to do is open up Russia for reconstruction projects, which the Germans will get. Germany will make a lot of money from the reconstruction projects um, uh, uh, projects in Russia, that will allow uh, Germany to pay Britain and France reparations. Britain and France can then repay the Americans the loans, or some of the loans. They'd quite like the Americans to give up on some of those, but they can repay some of those. And world prosperity will ensue. It will also mean that Bolshevism will be cut by kindness. And also, you don't say this, of course, Lloyd George, but sotto voce, Britain could also escape from its European uh, obligations which he really didn't want to be involved in anymore. He wanted to go back to being imperial and colonial power. Sadly, that failed because on Easter Sunday 1922, the Germans and the Russians, the pariahs of Europe, agreed the Treaty of Rapallo. Uh, the treaty, but in a sense, that, that was just the icing on the cake because the Genoa Conference had already really collapsed. The Americans wouldn't turn up so no one was going to discuss inter-allied debts. Uh, the French weren't prepared to discuss reparations, and Bartu had been sent by Poincaré with every intention, as he told Lloyd, of wrecking the, uh, wrecking the conference. Uh, so this really the Treaty of Rapallo between uh, France and uh, between Russia and Germany is really only the icing on, on the cake. So in conclusion, what might we say about uh, the post-war world? Well, you'll recall the famous statement by Harold Nicholson his verdict in 1933 in Peacemaking 1919, wonderful book, part diary of the 1919 Peace Conference and partly a historical reflection in 1933, though before I think uh, uh, the worst successes of Nazism had become apparent. In 1933, Nicholson said, we came to Paris convinced that the new order was about to be established. We left it convinced that the old order had merely fouled the new. But I think that Isaiah Bowman, who was one of the American experts in Paris, was perhaps more realistic and more balanced in his assessment. In the modern, closely organised, strongly commercialised world, it's virtually impossible to make a clean-cut distinction between what's right from the standpoint of ethnography, nationalistic sentiment and abstract justice, and what is fair from the standpoint of economic advantage. So if we introduce a new set of conceptions into diplomacy, if we call it, let us say, the new diplomacy, we shall perhaps here and there be able to achieve justice in minor cases. But the great states of diplomacy remain the same. We simply discuss them in different terms. Thank you very much. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved. <laughs>